A number of years ago, I got a phone call from uh, someone asking if I would be willing to switch my allegiance and take on a, uh, a leadership role uh, with them. And uh, after thinking about it for a while and, and after agreeing, I went and checked out the facility. Uh, and uh, it was a really great location, um, great resources, uh, perfect location, had great uh, drive-by uh, traffic. Uh, and so immediately I was thrust into uh, this important role. And right from the start, the things that I did myself that were dependent up upon me, uh, they went well and I think uh, went quite successfully. But the biggest obstacle, frustration, energy zapper uh, of getting anything done was some of the people. There were those who seemed to live to criticize the leadership. Uh, there were those uh, who liked to gossip and talk behind other people's backs. Uh, there were those who were judgmental, who were harsh in what they had to say. There were those who were critical about anything that went on and yet didn't seem to be willing to do anything about it uh, themselves. There were those who just kind of came in and left and didn't really have anything to say to anyone. And I know what you're thinking. It sounds like my workplace. I didn't know Brent worked where I worked. But I'm not talking about a workplace. I'm talking about a church. You see, the problem with a lot of the people at this church who profess to be followers of Jesus, at the core, was that they didn't demonstrate genuine love to each other. I'm not talking about Auburn Bible Chapel specifically. In fact, I don't even want to talk badly about a previous church that I was involved with. There was a lot of really genuinely, truly loving people that demonstrated it every week. Reality is, Auburn's the fourth church that I've attended. And there's about a 25-year period where I was involved in an itinerant preaching ministry where probably two Sundays of every month I was at a different church in Ontario and I would have lunch with people. And it seemed that it was fair game for the visiting preacher to sit around a lunch table and be the sounding board for all the problems of that particular church. And so I probably could choose or name any number of churches that fit the description of the frustration and the obstacles and the energy zapper of that specific church that I was talking about. Because the reality is, at times, churches are really lousy at love. Which is kind of bizarre and interesting. Because on the one hand, the world, even, even the world that doesn't believe that Jesus is the Savior, the world esteems Jesus for his life of love. They would agree that Jesus loved people, that he noticed people's pain, he cared about their needs, he, he accepted people that other people rejected, he was willing to forgive people that failed him, he was caring even when it was socially uncomfortable. Jesus was loving. 
And he demonstrated it in the life that he lived. And yet on the other hand, there's those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus who would say that we strive to be like Jesus and yet at times we can be so busy and and so self-focused that we fail. We fall short in this whole area of caring for and, and noticing the pain and the needs of others. And if you're like me, I, I can content myself knowing that there's a pretty good chance that somebody else is going to pick up the slack where I've fallen short. And I can be judgmental. We can be critical. We can be harsh and and lack sensitivity. And so you have Jesus and then you have what we can be at times. And there's this huge gap. And the question that has to be asked is how do we bridge the gap? And the Apostle John knew the answer. We heard it in our two scripture texts that were read for us this morning from 1 John. The sermon passage is from 1 John. And in John's first letter, he repeats over and over again the importance of love. The importance of loving one another. And it's really fitting, given that the series that we are still in is Let Me Remind You. Because in 1 John, John reminds his readers and 2,000 years later reminds us over and over again the importance of love. Uh, Some of us were out playing frisbee golf on Wednesday and I think it was Doug just mentioned that he really likes this series. And Brian and I just made a joke of the fact that it's a really easy series because we can just keep repeating the same messages over and over again because it's let me remind you. There's things of, of, of God's word, there's truths, there's, there's instruction that we need to constantly be reminded of. And, and that's what John is like in First John. In fact, the church father Jerome says that when John was... Uh, Near the end of his life, when he was so old, he couldn't even walk. And he would get carried into church gatherings. And at the end of the service, they would ask John and they would help him stand up if he had any exhortation uh, for the people who were gathered. And, and And it's said that John would repeatedly say when he was given the opportunity, Dear children, let us love one another. Dear children, let us love one another. Let me remind you again, dear children, let us love one another. And it got to the point that the people that were gathered would say, John, like you say it week after week after week. It's the same thing over and over again. And reportedly John said, and I'll say it again, because the Lord has commanded it. And if we do it, that'll be enough. If we, as the local community of faith, can be obedient to the Lord's command to love each other, that would be enough. And if you were to ask John, if John was here, he would say that loving each other is not an optional virtue for those of us who are followers of Jesus. It's not. 
Rather, our love for each other is to be a distinguishing mark of the church in this world. And in the few verses I want to look at with you this morning, John is going to point out two reasons why we, he uses the word, actually it's translated into English, why we ought to love each other. But I think we can weaken the word ought. So I'm going to say two reasons why we must love each other. And that's uh, in 1 John. And if you get your Bible, turn with me to 1 John 4. Uh, if you are using your Bible app, same thing, 1 John chapter 4. And uh, let me read the verses to you. And, and then we're going to look at these two um, points, these two reasons that John gives to us. So 1 John chapter 4. And we're just going to be looking at verses 7 uh, through 12. Verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And so as I said, there's, there's two reasons why John says that we must love each other if we are followers of Jesus, if we are members of this community uh, of faith. But one co- a couple of comments before we get to these, the two reasons. Uh, I was listening to, I, I got Apple um, music a, a while ago and, and realizing how marvelous it is to be able to go back to all the music from my youth and uh, I don't have to go buy the album. It's right, it's right there. And so I've been da- downloading and listening to some of the music from my high school days. And, and uh, a song that I was listening to not long ago, and it came to my mind as I was reading this text, uh, is a song by the group Foreigner. And I'm looking out at you this morning, and I'm sure none of you listen to Foreigner's music. But if you did, or maybe you've heard this specific song on the radio, it was quite popular. Uh, and, and Lou Graham of Foreigner would belt out these words, I want to know what love is. And so maybe you recognize that song just by that line. I think that is the title of the song. I want to know what love is is. And the reality is, in English, the word love can mean so many different things, right? Like, I love ice cream. Some people love digging worms. Some people love their cottage. Some people love their job. Some people uh, love fishing. We love our spouse. We talk about making love. And so the semantic range of the word love is quite wide. In English, it can mean so many different things. And so when I come to this text, and John says, Dear friends, let us love one another. The words of Lou Graham come to my mind. I want to know what love is. What kind of love is John speaking about? And to get our answer, we've got to go back to the Greek. Because in the Greek, there's a number of different words used for the English word love. 
And I'm not going to go into a Greek lesson, but there is a word that, that talks about family love. There's a word that talks about the love that friends would have for each other. There's a romantic love word. But none of those words is the word that John uses in our text. In fact, the word that is used here is the word that's most often used for the kind of love that God wants to see in his children. And you've probably guessed it. The word is agape love. Agape. It's a, a self-sacrificing love. It's a caring commitment that demonstrates itself by looking to achieve or desiring the highest good of the one who is loved. And that's the kind of love that John is talking about here. And John would be the first one to admit, that's not an easy kind of love. It's not a natural kind of love. It takes work. Sometimes it may not be our first choice. It's not devoid of, of uh, emotion and feelings, but it's not dependent upon those things either. But here's John's point. It is a duty. This kind of agape love is a duty for followers of Jesus Christ to be expected. And as we see in verse 11, to, me, to be demanded. Agape love. That's the kind of love that God has shown to us. And that's the kind of love that we, as followers of Jesus, are expected to demonstrate, to exhibit, to show to each other. And so as we go through the text, we're going to see these two reasons why we must love one another. And the first reason is in verses 7 and 8. And that's that we are to reflect the nature of God. And we're going to look at that a little bit deeper. So we ought to love each other because we are to reflect God's nature that's at work in us and through us. And then in verses 9 through 12, we see the second reason that we must love each other. And that's because we've experienced God's love ourselves. Our life has been changed supernaturally, radically, because of God's love for us. And so we must love each other. And we're going to look at those verses to unravel what that means. So let's look at verses uh, 7 and 8. And let's just take a look at this first reason why we must love. We are to be a reflection of God's true nature, living and at work in and through us. And so let's just read verses 7 and 8 again. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Let me point out three quick points from those two verses. First thing is, John says that love comes from God. So God is the source of love. Love flows from the very nature of God. That's the first thing to note. The second thing is John gives us a paternity test. That we in the community of faith demonstrate by our love for each other that we're the real deal. Got it? We, we demonstrate, we prove ourselves to be real and genuine that our profession is real and genuine by 
demonstrating our love for each other. And John says the flip side is true. When we fail to demonstrate, to exhibit love, agape love to each other, we demonstrate that our profession of faith is brought into question. That it's problematic. That we should take a look at the genuineness of our profession. That's pretty serious stuff. So love comes from God. John gives us a paternity test. And then third, he says, God is love. Which is really the point of verses 7 and 8. And that is that God is love. Therefore, if we are followers of God, if we are His children, then He lives within us. And He is working through us. And His love should flow out of us towards others. Okay, so those are the three points. Love flows from God. The paternity test. And God is love. So let's take a little bit of a deeper look at uh, these two verses. First of all, this whole idea that love comes from God. And if you read Scripture, you'll notice something about God's love. It's unique. It's not natural. Rather, it's it's supernatural. And what's the difference between natural love and supernatural love? Well, natural love, we understand. And, and, and in its motivation, it's quite easy. We, we love, our love flows or is directed at those things that we desire or we find attractive. And, and it's motivated by what we think or what we hope the person's response is going to be. Right? That, that's natural love. But supernatural love's different. Supernatural love sees beyond the surface. And it flows outward even to that which isn't desirable or attractive or deserving. And and it's not conditioned upon what the person's response is going to be. God's love is supernatural. His love flows, and we're going to look at this a little bit further. His love flows towards humanity that isn't deserving, that isn't worthy, and its sin is not attractive. And yet he loved us and demonstrated his love anyways. That's God's love. It's a supernatural kind of love. And as hard as humans may try, we can't live up to that kind of love unless we've been reborn by an act of God's grace. Okay, so love is from God. And then the other thing I want to look at a little bit deeper is this idea that God is love. God is love, and that is a truth of Scripture, but it's one that's often misunderstood and often taken to unbiblical 
extremes. And what do I mean by that? Well, we've, all, we've heard it all before. Uh, probably we've had to defend God because of these uh, unbiblical extremes. If God is loving, therefore, He will overlook my sin. If God is loving, He obviously will just sweep sin under the carpet. Because God is loving, He could never have someone eternally out of His presence. Right? We've heard those things before. God is love. That's true. That's one of his attributes. That's one of his characteristics. Theologians would say that is one of God's perfections. But the fact that God is love can't compromise or contradict his other attributes, his other perfections. God is love, but God is holy. God is just. So God is love, and if we just settled there and that was it, yeah, God's going to overlook sin because He wants to have a relationship with everyone, and He loves us all, and He would never want anyone to be eternally apart from Him. And so everyone is invited and everyone gets in. But the Bible says God is holy. He can't allow sin into His presence. He can't even look upon sin. He's repulsed by sin. God is just. He must deal with sin. That's his very nature. He has to deal. Sin must be punished. And so you've got God is love. God is holy. God is just. Those are just three of his attributes. And and all of a sudden, our, our minds are ready to blow because we can't handle what, what some have called a divine dilemma. How can God be loving, but at the same time be holy and be just? And I want you to hang on to that dilemma, uh, and uh, we're going to see how it gets resolved uh, quite shortly. And so we've got this divine dilemma, but we can't change the fact that God is love, but He's also holy, and He's also just. And that is an attribute, a perfection of God, but it can't compromise or confront his other, uh, or, or contradict his other attributes. And the other thing to note about the fact that God is love, John doesn't say God loves. Well, that's true. I mean, God loves. Obviously, God loves. But that's not what John says here. He says God is love. And the distinction is Love isn't just an activity of God. It isn't just something that He does. Rather, God is love. That's His very nature. At the core of who God is, is love. Uh, Theologians would say that His attribute, His perfection of love, impacts and affects everything that He does. So that He is lovingly holy. He's lovingly just. And on and on as we look at his different attributes. So God is love. That's his very nature. And so that flows right into what I believe John's main point of verse 7 and 8 is. The first reason why we must love each other. And that's because love is God's very nature. And if we have committed our life to him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and God's spirit lives within us, his very nature is within us. 
That should impact our lives. That should influence our lives. And His nature must be reflected within the local community of faith as we reflect His nature. His nature is love. As we reflect His loving nature to each other. John can't understand how anything could be different. In fact, he says if it is different, then there is a serious problem. If within the local community of faith, there is not demonstrations of loving and caring for each other, but rather there's backstabbing and gossip and selfishness and cliques and on and on and on. John said there's a serious, serious problem. People need to go home and take a look in the mirror. Martin Lloyd-Jones commenting on this says, we need to take this to heart in a serious way. There, there are many in evangelical churches that claim to be born again, but they don't love others. And they do not even make an effort to do so. They're angry, unkind, impatient, abusive in their speech, self-centered in their daily lives, and judgmental of others. They spread malicious gossip with great delight, and they are defensive if you try to point out any of these sins to them. Of such people, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, oh, my heart grieves and bleeds for them. They are pronouncing and proclaiming that they are born of God. They're outside the life of God. There's no hope for such people unless they repent and turn to Him. And that, that sounds harsh and it sounds extreme. But that's what John wants us to understand. That, that love needs to be a distinguishing mark of the local community of faith. Because God lives within us. And we should be reflecting His nature as we do life Together, So that's the first reason why we must love each other. And then we move on uh, to verses uh, 9 uh, through 12. He's talking about the group Foreigner and Lou Graham and the song, uh, I Want to Know What Love Is. And, and I really did enjoy Foreigner back in the, back in the day. But uh, Lou Graham left Foreigner. And... Uh, I was watching a, a video where he gave his testimony. Yes, he, he, he has a, a testimony. And, and in this testimony, he shares how he lived the rock, style, uh, rock star lifestyle. And uh, he, he lived a life of substance abuse. Uh, and there came a day where he just simply cried out to God to save him. Uh, and he was radically saved and had a major life change. Uh, As I said, he eventually uh, left Foreigner uh, and was obedient to what he felt was a call upon his life to take the message of the gospel uh, in music. Uh, And so he formed, uh, for a period of time uh, before he got sick, um, the Lou Graham Band. And uh, just hear the lyrics of one of his songs. It's called, I Want to Testify. Friends, inquisitive friends are asking, what's come over me? A change, there's been a change, it's so plain for everyone to see. Love walked in and it took me by surprise. Once I was a hollow man in which a lonely heart did dwell. Then love came sneaking up on me and brought a light to an empty shell. Well, I've heard so many times before that love can be so bad. I've just got to tell you now that it's the best love I ever had. I want to testify what your love has done 
for me. And I think it's just so cool. The guy that's known for singing, I want to know what love is, would, would write the words to a song after he discovered what real agape, supernatural love is uh, when he uh, encountered Jesus Christ in a saving way. And that's a perfect illustration of, of John's second point. Why should we love each other? And John says, we should love each other because God loved us. And we have experienced the supernatural, life-changing love of God in our lives if we have put our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we read in uh, chapter 4, verses 9, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. And in verse 9, we, we see the first result that John mentions of God's demonstrated love to us and sending his son. And if we've put our faith in him and what he has done for us, the first result, the first reason in these verses why we ought to love each other is that we've been given a new life. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are exhibit A. We are evidence of this supernatural love that God had for you and I that he sent when we weren't deserving, when we were living in rejection, when we were depraved in our sin, and yet God sent Jesus for us. Not just so we could be saved but that we could live our life anew. Not just that we would be saved, but that we would be given a new life. And that's what true Christianity is. And I think sometimes we, we, we minimize what true Christianity is. Because true Christianity isn't just stopping certain bad things that we used to do. It's not just adopting certain good things that we now do because we call ourselves a follower of Jesus. Rather, true Christianity is being given a new life and living that life through and in Jesus. That's true Christianity. And that's why we're ought to love, we ought to love each other. Because we've been given this new life. And we live our life through Jesus. And then, and John continues in verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Do you hear what John says in that verse? Because that's the fullness of the gospel, right there. Who, who initiated this demonstration of love? God. When did he initiate it? Was it when we looked like we were ready to accept it? Was it, was it when we looked like we were at a point of being good enough? That, that we've achieved it, we'd, we'd earned it, we'd attained it? No, that's not what Scripture tells us. Over and over and over again, it says that while we were at enmity with God, while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were living in our sin, while we would have rejected Him, that's when God sent 
Jesus. That's a question that's often asked. Why did Jesus come to this world? And you hear all the answers, right? Like Jesus came to, to set an example, a good example of how to live a loving and caring life. And that's true, but that's not why Jesus came. Or he came to set guidelines and give instruction on how to live a good life. Well, that's true, but that's not the, the primary reason that Jesus came to this earth. The Bible says Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came in this world to take the sin of the world, the price that we owe, the penalty upon himself, and crucify it to a cross, satisfying God's holiness and justice. Remember that dilemma? How could God be loving, holy, and just and not compromise or contradict himself? Well, that's how we could do it. The answer, the solution is found in the cross. Jesus, the perfect substitute, sacrifice, took our place and satisfied God's wrath against sin. God can't look upon sin. He can't accept us into his presence if our sin isn't dealt with, but he can accept us if we're covered in the blood of his son. If he looks at us and he sees the work of his son on the cross done on our behalf, credited to our account because we put faith in what Jesus has done for us. And it satisfies God's perfect wrath. And that's what God has done for us. Jesus came for sinners and he has paid the price for our sin, the consequence of our sin. One thing I often say to my children, and if you were a fly on the wall, you would hear this conversation. Uh, it's about different topics, but it's pretty well the same thing all the time. Uh, I tell them that they fail to appreciate what's been given to them or what's been done for them because they don't understand the cost. Case in point, hot water. Now, we live out in the country and we are blessed with oil being how we heat everything. And so it gets expensive to keep hot water going and going and going. Well, Graham, who's not here, he used to get up and stumble out of bed, turn the shower on, go to the washroom, then get in the shower, and 15 minutes later, he's still standing in the shower. I go, Graham, what are you doing? Oh, it helps me wake up. I go, do you understand how much it costs to heat this house and heat the water with oil? Case in point two, Jack, who is here? I will often hear Jack stumble out of bed, go into the washroom and turn the shower on, and I'll be sitting on the main floor, and I'll hear the shower and go, good, Jack's going to be clean today. Five minutes go by, I go, okay, he's going to be really clean. Ten minutes go by, I go, okay, he's, good. he's becoming like his brother Graham. He's, he's living in the shower. And I'm going to go about to get up and go say something to him. Then I hear him actually get into the shower. 
I go, what in the world are you doing? Well, I, I had to clean my room, and I was looking for my clothes for the day, and I forgot the shower was on. Do you understand how much heating oil costs? And they don't really understand, and so they don't appreciate what's been done or what's been given to them. The last case in point. Graham got a job at McDonald's. 20 minutes away, Graham didn't have a car. Dad had a car. Graham took lots of shifts, enjoyed taking other people's shifts. We live in Ponte Porter Road in 115. The McDonald's was in Newcastle. And so three or four times a week, I would drive Graham 20 minutes to McDonald's. I would then come home and then three, four, five, six hours later, do the repeat trip. And then three or four evenings a week or on the weekends, Graham would say, Dad, let's go to the gym. So we would drive from Pontypool into the wellness center in Peterborough three or four times. And I'd go and do like, Graham, do you understand? No, he had no clue. Then Graham bought my car. And he still had the job at McDonald's. And he started going to the gym like eight times a week. And he came to me not too long. He said, Dad, I can't believe how much money you must have spent on gas driving me. That's crazy. I'm going, you get it. He realized what had been done and what had been given to him because he understood the cost. And as parents, I see a bunch of you nodding your heads. And yet, I really think our salvation falls into that same category. Because we fail to understand what God has done for us because we don't appreciate or fully comprehend the cost. All have sinned. And fallen short of the standard that God has set. And the wages of sin is death. We were ungodly. We were at enmity with God. We were in our sin. The list goes on. But God demonstrates his love in this. That while we were like that, he sent his one and only son to die for us. That was the cost. And I truly believe that when we can come face to face and come to grips and understand the horrific cost of our sin, it will melt our hardness. It will radically transform our life. And we will reflect. We will be conduits of God's love given to us, to others, within the community of faith and, and beyond the community of faith. And because we've been given this new life, and because Jesus was sent to pay the price for our sin, John says, you must love one another. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And when you understand that, then verse 12 makes sense because it's kind of a complicated verse. I'm not going to take a, a much time at all to, to dissect it. But no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete 
in us. John says, because of what God has done for you, he's demonstrated his love, he sent his son, you've been given a new life. Your sins have been atoned for. You must love one another. And when you do that, my love is made complete. In other words, the objective of my love is made complete. Because my objective in demonstrating my love wasn't just so that you would be saved, but it would be that you would then reflect my nature to others. And you would love others within the community of faith, outside the community of faith. Why? Because God knew that a church that loves each other and demonstrates it is like a magnet. It's like a shining light in the world. We don't have to say anything outside the walls of this church. But if we demonstrate love to each other inside this building and outside that building, those who are watching, and yes, the world is watching, are super attracted. They want to know what's going on. We love each other. We're willing to sacrifice for each other. We care about the pain and the needs of each other. And they go, I, I want to know more. Really? Can I come? We had friends that said that once. Can, can I come? For sure. Wow, that was easy. All we had to do is demonstrate love to our neighbors. And they wanted to come to our church. John says, dear children, dear beloved, let us love one another. That is to be the distinguishing mark of the church. And the question I leave us with is, individually and, and as a body known as Auburn Bible Chapel, as people look at our lives and look at the lives of this community of faith, what is it that they see? Is love, agape love, a marker of our lives and of our church that shines as a light to this world? Daniel.